Medicine and healthcare have always been defined by more than just science. They are also shaped by culture, economics, politics and society. In short, they reflect us, who we are, what we value and what we don't. My name is Kieran Fitzpatrick and this is Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide. Hello and welcome to this third episode of Body Politics with me, Kieran Fitzpatrick. In this first season, we're doing a deep dive into the history of infectious diseases and how they shape the politics of societies all over the world. In conversation with historians drawn from amongst the world's best universities, we're looking to uncover how diseases structure politics. That is the process of who gets what, when and how at any given point in time. In our previous episode, we focused on smallpox, which until its eradication in May 1980, was one of the world's most deadliest infections, responsible for approximately 300 million deaths in the 20th century alone. Although the disease's elimination was amongst medicine's greatest achievements in any age, induced first by Edward Jenner's successful vaccination against the disease in 1798, those triumphs came at the end of a darker story in which smallpox had been aided and abetted through the expansion of European colonisation and its creation of health inequalities on a global scale. This week, we're thinking about smallpox from a different angle, as the disease against which modern anti-vaccination movements first defined themselves particularly in Jenner's home nation of Britain. As we're going to hear with the help of Nadia Durbach from the University of Utah, the story of what we now call the anti-vax movement in 19th century Britain was, in one sense, unique to its time and place, but, in another, raises questions about the relationship between states and their citizens, and what we think of people who think differently to us, that remain pertinent in our own times. Twisted Sisters' We're Not Gonna Take It has become an anthem in recent years for channeling populist disaffection with a whole range of issues in North America. It was used by the Trump campaign in the run-up to the 2016 election and appeared in 2012 as well through Paul Ryan's campaign for vice president. But its use here goes back to 2009 and a promotional video used as part of a campaign that supported the spread of the subject we're thinking about in this episode, opposition to vaccination. The video that used Twisted Sisters music was one part of that campaign, the other of which was a rally that took place in Vancouver, British Columbia. The rally's purpose was to foment sentiment against compulsory vaccination for the precursor to COVID-19, the flu virus known as H1N1 or swine flu in Vancouver. As the crowds gathered around the stage, they didn't see before them an anti-establishment renegade, but an accomplished professor of neuroscience and ophthalmology at the University of British Columbia named Christopher Shaw. Dressed in sensible chinos and in a polo shirt, with his eyes shielded by shades against bright sunlight, Shaw began holding forth against the establishment of which he was a part, and soon disarmed his audience with a story of how he had come to speak to them. Not by way of his medical training, but through his experiences as a concerned parent. It's interesting when you talk to doctors, many of you will have had the experience of your parents. I have, I have two children, one is 19 now, and, and he's had vaccines, because I didn't know a lot about it at, at the time. Uh, I have a daughter who's six. Her mother has had adverse uh, vaccine reactions in the family, so we decided not to vaccinate my daughter, uh, especially given what I now know. 
And when my, my ex-wife took my daughter in to see a, a pediatrician for another reason, he basically refused to see my daughter. He said, you're a bad parent to my ex. He said, you're a terrible parent. You must be one of those anti-vaccine de de deniers who hates everything about medicine. And all you want to do is put your child at risk. I should call social services. Had I been there, had I been there, he wouldn't have tried that on me because I would have opened up my paper and I would have said, you see these little yellow things? Those are dead motor neurons inside the spinal cord of a mouse. And that's not what I want you to do to my daughter. And you, and you can't tell me that that's not going to happen because you simply don't know what the reason is. The temptation here, at least for me, is to write Shaw off as a quack and the people who listen to him as duped by an emotive story backed up by his plausible references to medical research that is in fact, a barrier to them accessing arguably the most remarkable and effective medical technology in human history. For me, responding to the question, will you get the COVID vaccine, is a simple answer in the affirmative. Yes, I will, because I have personal friends who are medical scientists and doctors and are part of a professional community who fundamentally I trust when it tells me that COVID vaccines are safe for people of my age and health profile. I also view being vaccinated as part of my responsibilities as a son. My dad has had multiple sclerosis for the past 20 or so years, which has left him severely physically impaired. And so by being vaccinated, I'm making sure that, to the best of my knowledge, he won't get sick through me. But to put those personal choices and circumstances in a broader civic or public perspective, why do I think differently from people like Christopher Shaw and those who supported him in propagating anti-vaccine sentiment as regards swine flu? This is a question we're going to answer with the help of Nadia Durbach from the University of Utah, one of the world's leading authorities on the British history of anti-vaccination movements, and we're going to delve into that conversation very soon. But before that, I think it's worth taking a few moments to think about our thinking on this topic, which is an exercise that I've seen taking place more frequently during the COVID-19 pandemic. People with expertise in social science research around the question of anti-vaccination sentiment are increasingly emphasising that it's a phenomenon that can have very valid and understandable roots planted in experiences of maltreatment through the actions of states scientific research institutions and business interests, or a combination of all three. In a recent editorial published in The Guardian, one such researcher, Bernice Hausman, the author of a book named Antivax, stated that those who were vaccine-hesitant, as she calls them, are increasingly coming to be seen not as victims of misinformation, but as mistrustful of science and the state for valid social and historical reasons. This sort of growing tolerance and nuance as regards anti-vaccinationism stands in contrast to a longer standing and far harsher tone, most often the preserve of entertainment figures or comedians. I remember a couple of years back, the American talk show host Jimmy Kimmel doing a segment on anti-vaccinationism in which he depicted anti-vaxxers as decadent Hollywood Hills types who view bot Botox injections as fine, but vaccines as repulsive. And just this last week, Stephen Colbert referred to those holding anti-vaccine perspectives as internet crazies. Some of this stuff is no doubt entertaining and they do it to get a laugh. But maybe too often this is where people's thinking stops and the nuance gets dispensed with. It matters why people hold on to these beliefs and why they gain traction and no amount of disregarding people as internet crazies is going to help with that. And the likes of Bernice Hausman's work, I think, is really important and timely in confronting these questions more roundly. So we need to ask, should we roundly dismiss people for being opposed to vaccines? If not, then what do we do with that sentiment and the people who hold on to it? How sure are we that they're actually rejecting vaccines and not expressing something deeper and more profound in the subtext of that conversation? And if we do dismiss them, then what might we be missing in someone's context that can help us to better understand their behaviour and maybe even to empathise with them? Because what I think we're about to hear through my conversation with Nadia Durbach are echoes of the sorts of emotions that men like Shaw channel. Suspicion, anger, malcontent, but in a very different context. That of early 19th century Britain, 
in the hundred or so years after Edward Jenner's vaccine was first co-opted by the state and used to try and create a healthier citizenry. We're joining the conversation just as Nadia is giving us valuable context to the social and political circumstances that surrounded resistance to vaccines amongst the British working classes as they emerged from the Industrial Revolution in the 1830s and 1840s. What I hope becomes clear is that at various points in recent history, vaccination has acted as a lightning rod for attracting people's emotions about their relationships with powerful institutions that govern their societies and how those relationships have fundamentally shaped their lives and prospects. In short, for many people, there's more than just vaccine emerging from the sharp end of a syringe. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what with the kind of full force of the Industrial Revolution taking root in the 1830s, that's kind of combined in that very same moment with this kind of profound sense of literal disenfranchisement with the 1832 Reform Act, where working men, at least, are expecting the vote and don't get it. And then combined with the poor law, which treats poverty essentially as a crime, and um, institutionalizes anyone wanting government relief. And then with the Anatomy Act on top of that, which gives the government basically permission to give the bodies of the poor to anatomy schools. I think those, all of those things combining in the early you know, decades of the 19th century kind of sets up a world in which the working class population feels as second-class citizens, that the, the economy is based on their industrial labor, and yet they are treated as disposable. And so once compulsory vaccination is introduced um, in the 1850s, I think there's this profound sense that the government um, is seeking to control working class bodies, to label them as contagious, as responsible for disease, and then to have them undergo what was seen as a really dangerous procedure that other people could buy themselves out of. And I think that constellation of anxieties creates this environment that's really a kind of rich moment for, um, for protest and for those kind of very profound feelings of being a second-class citizen. Yeah, capped off in, what, 1853 with compulsory vaccination, which is where your work starts, really, isn't it? Right. And in some ways, I feel like my story has to start in the 1830s. You have to understand what the 20 years before this looked like to people. And Mm. then with the introduction then of compulsory vaccination in the 1850s, Um, It's kind of a new generation of people whose parents, right, had experienced that making of a working class in the 1830s. So this is sort of second generation industrial working class that's then becoming kind of the subjects for or the objects of government vaccination programs. So how then did vaccination happen during this period? What were its nuts and bolts as a process? And how did it stoke this quite anxious and fraught relationship between the emergent working class that you've just described and the British state? I think the first mistake that the government makes when it decides to introduce compulsory vaccination is to run it through the poor law. So they have this problem, and it's actually the same problem we're having in this moment of distribution. And so they think to themselves, well, let's distribute it through an institution right, that we already are running, which is the poor law, which has its own kind of medical branch. So workhouses, which basically institutionalize the poor, also have medical infirmaries attached to them. They have employees who are poor law medical officers of health. And so for people who can't afford to pay for a vaccination through their kind of fee-for-service medical practitioner, the only way to get it then is through the poor law. And so The way the government introduces that is they offer free public vaccination um, to the public by poor law medical officers. So there is this kind of link then between welfare for people who are um, too destitute to support themselves then and this public vaccination for the public. And the government mandates that the people who become these public vaccinators 
are what are considered at the time officials, medical officials, medical professionals in some way. And they say they need to be, you know, sort of properly trained. But the problem is when compulsory vaccination is introduced in 1853, there actually is no state regulation of medicine. And so to say that a public vaccinator has to be a medical official who is properly trained doesn't actually tell you anything at all because there's multiple routes to getting um, a medical degree into practicing medicine, some of which include a legitimate legal purchase of a diploma. But this is a long way of saying that the people appointed public vaccinator may not be as qualified a medical practitioner as we might be used to seeing today. Um, and the process of vaccination at this time is also really messy and really scary. Um, we are sure. before germ theory. So what that means in practice is we are before any form of sterilization of equipment. The way vaccination was performed, the results of the vaccination might lead to infection because the tools being used aren't sterile. We're used to being vaccinated with a sterile hypodermic needle. And goes in, it comes out, leaves very little behind, and we're not super worried that we're going to be infected at the site of the vaccination. But the way in which a public vaccinator uh, working for the government would have vaccinated someone in the 1850s would have been to take usually a small knife called a lancet, so a surgical tool. and A bit like a scalpel? Or... Like a scalpel, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and they would have made cuts, like a hashtag. They would have made um, four or five hashtags with a knife on the arm of an infant and then put the vaccine matter into those four or five places. So again, this isn't just one place on the arm. It's usually four or five to make sure that it takes. And what they would have used is the pussy um, smallpox matter coming out of the arm of a previously vaccinated infant. So right. not only were you required under the law to get your child vaccinated, but you would be required to bring your child back eight days later and for that child to be used as this sort of um, vaccine incubator, essentially. So I had Kristen Brigg from Johns Hopkins on in the last episode, and she was describing a variation of this process in relation to the rollout of vaccines into the British colonial world <clears throat> in roughly this period. And this is effectively a process of using children to store vaccines in the same way that we use refrigeration units today to store vaccines for, say, COVID-19. Exactly. So right now we're really struggling with the fact that the vaccine has to be stored at these um, temperatures, right, for the coronavirus vaccine. Um, and that's become a real problem right for distribution but if you're storing the vaccine literally in the bodies of infants then you never have to worry about that it's always available to you and you could be fined money um, or even imprisoned if you refuse to bring your child back to be used as the kind of vaccine source for other babies so they're storing the vaccine in the arms of infants and then they're scooping it out and sm smearing it into those hashtag cuts on the arms of babies. So you can see there's a lot going on there that could mm. lead to bad outcomes. Which I think makes concerns about smallpox vaccination amongst the working classes very understandable. If we, we allow ourselves to sit with just how invasive the process was at this time, pitched against the backdrop of such a contentious and quite brutal relationship that the emergent working classes had with the state and they were i think they were not wrong to believe themselves to be targets if you had money you could go and have this done you know you could pay to have it done by your private physician um, who at this time were not government doctors they were just private physicians and um, you could pay to have it done um, in just one place instead of four or five places, in a place that would be invisible 
So the bottom of your foot between your toes, and this was especially done for upper middle class girls because they didn't want them to, you know, have bear the scars on their on their bodies. You know, I actually still have a big scar on my arm from vaccination, which mm. I had as a baby, and it's quite noticeable even with very modern technologies. And so people mm. were hiding this, um, and also, frankly, and this was made known by the anti-vaccination movement that there actually wasn't. Uh, definition of vaccination. So anti-vaccinators used to say that, you know, if you had the money, you could pay your physician to perform anything at all called vaccination. And then the physician would fill out the certificate and claim you would be vaccinated. But they said he might have just waved a statue of a cow in your face and and called you vaccinated. And so, you know, the procedure varied enormously between the classes um, in terms of how risky it was because one tiny little scratch is very different from five. Yeah, and I think that point raises the question of historical specificity in that there's a very specific set of circumstances around the issue of anti-vaccination in this period, which in turn make anti-vaccination specific to early to mid 19th century Britain and to a certain extent foreign to our own times and to the forms of anti-vaccination sentiment that we're seeing around COVID-19 and we have done over the past decade or so. Do you think that's a fair point? I think the the major difference is um, scientific understandings of how vaccination works and the success associated with vaccination. So we have to remember that until the 1890s, there is absolutely no understanding of the immune system. We understand how vaccination works and it can be explained to us, even regular everyday people with no medical background, because we all have some understanding of how the immune system works. But there is no theory of the immune system until the 1890s. So people don't actually understand and can, it cannot be explained to them how vaccination works. Nobody understands this. The other thing that's really different is... Um, you know, what we're talking about in the 19th century, smallpox vaccination. And there was some sense of what smallpox might have been. Um, It was understood to be contagious, obviously, but it wasn't understood really to be this kind of living organism. And it couldn't actually be seen and identified until the 1930s with the invention of the electron um, microscope, because it's such a, a virus is a very small thing. And this is a very tiny organism. And so... We don't even know what it is in the 19th century. So it's all the idea that vaccination works is based on um, what we call empiricism. So the idea that you can show that something works. Um, What Edward Jenner did was he experimented and he could prove that vaccination was working, but he couldn't actually explain why. So the major difference today is that we fully understand what a living organism is. I don't think there's anybody today who is disputing the idea that the coronavirus is a living discrete organism, where there was a really vibrant debate until really the 1880s about whether smallpox was alive, what it was, whether it caused you know the same symptoms in everybody. And so there's a really big difference then in scientific understandings of how vaccination works. And I think in the 19th century, it was legitimate to say, well, You're telling me that it works because you've seen it work, but you're not really explaining to me how it works um, and why it works. And I think today we really, we can't say that. I think the science is absolutely clear. And even non-experts can understand today how a vaccination works. Yeah, so I broadly agree. And because there's a specific set of scientific ideas and types of knowledge around disease causation and vaccination that to an extent determine the nature of social reactions to those things vaccination and anti-vaccination seem like issues that just as in our own times act as sort of gateways for thinking about broader histories of the ways in which different peoples and their bodies are interpreted by political institutions could you speak a little bit to that as well yeah, I think that um, that actually the Compulsory Vaccination Act ends up kicking, it's sort of responding both to anxieties that have been around since the 1830s, and then also in some ways kind of 
kicking off a new era of anxieties about the body. So it's kind of sitting between a kind of early 19th century sense of anxiety and a late 19th century. So the early 19th century, I think, is really coming out of the Anatomy Act and the idea that working class bodies can be used as experimental material. So the idea that that medicine professionalizes in many ways because it starts um, to use anatomy as the basis. So the sense that what you're interested in um, as a medical practitioner is not just a kind of series of symptoms and diagnoses and treatments, but a sort of fundamental understanding of how the body works. And to do that relies on anatomy and by the 1830s, then, many, many more people are being trained through dissection, which relies on bodies, which the government decides are going to come out of workhouses, which are then going to be the poor. So I think the idea that compulsory vaccination, because it can't really be explained how vaccination works, is another version of experimenting on the bodies of the poor. I think that sure. links it back to the 1830s. But I think it's also kicking off a kind of new era in which the what I call the medicalization of public health. So the idea that the way to address um, the public's health, so the idea that the government should be responsible for health kind of more broadly rather than individuals being responsible for their own health, this really starts to change in the 1850s. In the 1830s and 40s, um, public health was really addressed through um, municipal sanitation, so the cleaning up of cities, which is not really medical. It's kind of, um, you know, it's urban infrastructure. Than anything, right? right? It's like it's about trying to clean up the water supply, trying to get rid of garbage and dirt. And in this, it's, you know, it's, it's reflecting this miasmatic theory of disease, this idea that people believe that dirt is literally the cause of disease. Um, so if you clean that up, you improve the public health. But I think what happens in the 1850s and, and vaccination is really the first technology that is a preventative, right, rather than a treatment. So this um, the cleaning up of cities is not a medical preventative. It's a kind of sanitary preventative. But when vaccination enters the scene, it's the first time there's this idea that medicine could intervene to protect the public's health. And um, I think the government seizes on this because the cleaning up of the streets isn't really helping. Cholera is still rampant in the 1850s. So this urban sanitation regime doesn't really help. And so it's the first of a series of interventions that the government makes mm. in public health that really starts to affect people's bodies rather than their environments. So that the right. government decides it's going to, you know, clean up, you know, the neighborhood that you live in. You know, it might be that you might see that as a nuisance. And you also might see that as it's none of the government's business. You know, whether my my outhouse overflows in this direction or that direction. But it doesn't really affect your body. But compulsory vaccination is the first time that the government really steps in. And it affects your body and your children's body. And I think what that does is it kicks off a series of other interventions that follow, one of which is the compulsory inspection of prostitutes for venereal disease in the 1860s. And so right. there's this kind of link between vaccination and these later public health measures that actually really do address people's bodies and their children's bodies um, really directly rather than the government just addressing these kind of environmental concerns. So that account of the, excuse the pun, uh, body politics that emerges from anti-vax concerns in the mid-19th century makes me think back to the definition of politics that this show works in relation to, which is that politics is the process by which it is decided in society who gets what, when, and how. And I'm sure you're familiar with it was um, Harold Laswell, the American sociologist, I think, who, who came up with that. And it seems to me that the British state in how it implemented vaccination during this period was almost using the topic as a wager for counteracting the claims that ordinary British people were making about their rights and dues as political individuals. Do you think that assessment stacks up? 
Well, it's interesting because the cost is really borne by the working class. Um, And they still don't receive the benefits of having contributed to society until really the 1880s. And it's still just men, right? So there is, um, you know, there is electoral reform in 1867, which actually does coincide with a strengthening of the vaccination acts, um, the kind of putting in the mechanisms that make them even kind of more compulsory in the 1860s. But that's a very small group of people who are getting the vote. And so there is this sense in which the working class has to assume the greatest greatest risk, you know, from vaccination. And yet they get almost nothing in return until the 1880s. And so yeah. there's, you can see how this, how this movement would have increased over the course of the 19th century in relation to the sense that people feel more and more disenfranchised. We start to see socialism emerging, organized socialism in the 1880s. And so we can see the parallels between these, the sense that you know it's working class people who have to get vaccinated because they can't afford to find the loophole to get out. And we have to explain that, you know, if you didn't vaccinate your child after 1853, um, the government could come for you and they could fine you until you were bankrupt. Then they could seize all your goods and auction them off to pay your fines. And if you still did not get your child vaccinated, they could throw you in jail for two weeks. But That's the extraordinary. it's extraordinary. But the only people they're coming for are working class people. This was not a moment in which um, the vaccination officer, who's separate, there's a public vaccinator and there's a vaccination officer. The vaccination officer is a civil servant, and his job. And these were all men because when women tried to do these jobs, they determined they were too dangerous for them. Their job is right. to go around and make sure that the people who appear on the list as not yet having vaccinated their children go to get the vaccination done. And so they're knocking on doors, um, you know, trying to track down people who've actually moved to get away from them. And these are quite dangerous jobs. Um, some of them are getting beaten up. And these are people who are often sort of working class people themselves, ex-policemen, those kind of people. And they're not going into middle class neighborhoods. They're not knocking yeah. on those doors. Um, and middle class people- trying to be intermediaries. Yeah. And middle class people could afford to pay these fines, whereas working class people could not. And middle class people are only going to jail if, um, you know, if they're martyrs for the cause, if they're trying to martyr themselves, mm-hmm. trying to um, be be kind of kind of figureheads for the anti-vaccination cause. And of course, um, you know, I think it's it's helpful sometimes to define what we mean by middle class too. You know, yeah, I know for absolutely. for Americans, um, you know, middle class just means regular everyday people. But you know. That's not what we understand to be working class and middle class in the 19th century. Working class people are regular everyday people. Middle class people are really kind of wealthy elite people. And so the professional classes, the professional classes, industrialists, bankers, insurance people, um, members of the clergy Um, and, and, and that population, you know, small percentage of the of the population at this time, probably 20 percent of the population, it's that group that is not getting fined, not getting thrown in jail. It's the bulk of the population, yeah. regular everyday people. That's what I mean when I say working class. Um, it's it's that population that's um, doing a runner in the middle of the night to avoid the vaccination officer. Sure, and then within the working classes, you can't understand what it was like to be working class devoid of thinking about gender as well. And the experience of being vaccinated or not, or being anti-vax or not, in 19th century Britain must have had quite a substantial gender dimension. Yeah, and what's very, what I find really interesting is that, um, you know, most of the people who are taking their children to be vaccinated were women. They were mothers. Right. And this is because they had the time to do this. Um, Many working class women still didn't work because it was, um, you know, it was a sign of respectability if you had the kind of job that your wife didn't have to work. But even for working women, so even women who were, you know, at work in the day, they were considered responsible for childcare. So taking your child to be vaccinated was part of childcare. And so you were the one to do it. However, at the point 
where it became possible to be what was called a conscientious objector to vaccination. So in 1898, the British government acknowledges that some people object um, in ways that are um, acceptable to the state. So the idea that you could have a view that was consistent um, and that they would recognize giving you an exemption from requiring to vaccinate your child, those um, were given out primarily to men. So there was a sense that women, even though they were responsible for the health of the children, for the childcare, for much of the raising of the children, could not themselves be intelligent enough or thoughtful enough to claim a conscientious objection. And so many of the magistrates who gave those out would only give them to the fathers. And so only men, right. it was believed, could have the kind of conscience that allowed them to make a kind of informed decision about this. And it's amazing that conscious, conscientious objection then gets associated with war during the, for the First World War. Yeah, and what's, there's actually a very direct connection here. Actually, the civil servant in charge of overseeing compulsory vaccination during the period in which the, it had been decided that conscientious objection would be allowed for vaccination, he ends up being the person who institutes conscientious objection during the First World War. So there wow. is... Wow, what was his name? Walter Long. Walter Long, okay. Yeah, and so there is this not just connection in terms of the language being used, but there's this very direct connection that that conscientious objection, the idea that one could, either for religious reasons or for intellectual, philosophical reasons, one could have an objection to vaccination that becomes very literally the blueprint for the idea during the First World War that you could have not only a religious objection, but also a kind of secular political objection to fighting in the First World War. And Britain is a very rare as a country to allow for this. Many other countries had no, um, no um, provisions for conscientious objection during the First World War. We see much more um, during the Second World War. But the reason Britain has this during the First World War is because they've already established that as a category in relationship to compulsory vaccination. And I think it's critical that it's both a religious objection is allowed, but also a kind of political secular one. And in 1898, you had to prove that. So you had to go before a magistrate and you could get a long lecture from the magistrate. You could be interviewed and they could approve or deny your conscientious objection. In 1907, the law is revised. And so it's just that you need to make a statement rather than actually be um, grilled. But the grilling process is what continues into the First World War. So you are brought up in the First World War. If you claim conscientious objector status, you're brought up before a tribunal, which can reject your claims. And many, many people, um, you know, claims were rejected and they ended up imprisoned, claiming to be conscientious objectors who were not recognized as having that official status by the government. So that makes me think if the the two but the question of vaccination and the question of war are linked during this period by the idea of being able to object on certain grounds does the state then employ the same language it employs during say the first world war of doing national service and doing duty to try and convince people earlier during small smallpox vaccination campaigns to, to try and get vac get them to vaccinate? It's a great question, and it's sort of puzzling that there isn't really um, a well-thought-out pro-vaccination government campaign. And it doesn't deploy that idea of good citizenship, which I think is very much alive today, this sense that part of the oh, reason yeah. you get vaccinated is an act of good citizenship, right? Yeah. But in part, that is actually because the reason we think of that today as an act of contributing back to society is because we understand herd immunity, right? We understand that me being vaccinated doesn't only protect me, it protects you as well and everybody else who for whatever reason can't be vaccinated or hasn't been vaccinated. But because there's no theory of immunity in the 19th century, there's no understanding of herd immunity. And so vaccination is really seen as an individual act. 
Now it's understood that if individuals get vaccinated, then they don't spread the disease, but there isn't really that same kind of sense of of contributing to the community in quite the same way. And I think it would have been a really, I think there, it, that, there is a way in which that language and those concepts could have been deployed by the government in the 19th century, but instead they really chose a kind of much more draconian, um, strong state approach. And the thing that's you know highly ironic about this is it's introduced in a moment, and it's strengthened indeed in the 1860s, in a, in a moment in which the kind of most common rhetoric of government is a non-interventionist idea, a small government, you know, right. um, what we in Britain call old liberalism, what Americans might think of as libertarianism. Yes. The sense that the government should play the least role it possibly can, and that private enterprise should, you know, be left to its own devices, free trade, laissez-faire. And so the idea that of a very interventionist state requiring you to do something to your body runs very contrary to the theory of government most prevalent in Britain between the 1850s and the 1870s. And so this yeah. comes as a very kind of ironic move. And yet that is the rhetoric deployed, this rhetoric of the strong state sort of essentially requiring you to do this rather than this kind of sense of being a good citizen, um, you know, participating in in democracy because you're you're really it's that would be highly ironic because you're not really allowed to participate in choosing you know your governance you're allowed to participate as much as we tell you you can participate exactly and that's why and that's why you see this tension emerge this kind of like you know individual rights personal liberties language that hands off my body it's my right to do what i want with my body in this moment in which that is what the government is preaching, largely laissez-faire, free trade, hands-off, minimal intervention. Yeah. So the anti-vaccinators are actually echoing that rhetoric right back to the government. But the government is saying, but not in this case and not yeah. for you. Yeah, sure, sure. Do as I do, as I do, not as I, or do as I say, not as I do. But you also get in this period the growth of, say, working class um, friendly societies, which is which are an early form of social insurance effectively. So in those institutional settings, do you get any form of working class representatives turning to their constituents and saying, maybe this isn't such a bad idea? Oh, that's interesting. I did not encounter any um, working class people or movements or organizations that were promoting vaccination um, as part of this sense of mutuality. But of course, the best that I can figure out is about 25% of the population chose not to vaccinate, which does tell us that, you know, a huge portion of people, um, either because they believed in it or were coerced or didn't know about anti-vaccinationism or didn't have the resources that most people did choose to vaccinate or did were vaccinated in the end. Um, but I didn't really see any organized working class pro-vaccination movement. So people were either doing it and moving on with their lives or, or actively not doing it or just passively not doing it. But I don't see any kind of... Um, kind of rhetoric emerging from within a kind of working class self-help movement that's pro-vaccination, um, which is a little bit surprising because it's what those it same yeah. movements that are producing anti-vaccination. Because when I mapped out, so, you know, when I was started to do this research, it was, uh, you know, I was still pretty old fashioned about how I did things. So like I rolled out a map of the UK and I, I put a little dot on every place that I knew had an anti-vaccination society. So an organized group of people right. who are actively protesting and encouraging others to protest. And when I stepped back and looked at the map, it mapped almost perfectly onto um, sort of working class self-help union movements, um, that kind of working class mobilization. So all across the North and the Midlands, um, you know, much less active in the South and around London, although there, of course, there were, you know, societies based out of London. But you could see a kind of overlap 
between working class trade unionism, working class friendly societies, working class self-help of all forms, um, temperance, those kinds of things. And so I think the people most likely to be part of those other kind of self-help movements and organized working class movements were anti-vaccinators rather than pro-vaccinators. Right, right. It's just fascinating to me because so much of the friendly society rhetoric is around uh, minimizing risk to the people who are buying into these insurance groups or shared insurance policies. Now, I know that, you know, we've talked about the fears that working class people associated with the process of vaccination, and that must have been wrapped up in ideas of risk for them. But it just strikes me that if you have a body who deals in sort of risk mitigation for its constituents, then at least sort of one of them probably should have turned their attention to the idea of thinking, is vaccination worth it? Yeah, and I think risk is actually, it's a really, really important word to introduce into this conversation. Because right. I actually think that um, 19th century mothers were pretty good on risk, right? They had watched their children die. You know, many women had many pregnancies um, and children died under the age of five years old, you know, all the time throughout this period. Um, and so they understood the effects of epidemic disease. They'd seen it firsthand, but they also had seen the effects of vaccination as well. And, you know, when I was talking about the use of unsterilized instruments, you know, often what would happen is you'd bring your child back to your home and then their arm would become infected and they'd die from some kind of infection that would just never Sepsis happen today. Sepsis, right? Or gangrene or something like that. Um, and so for many people, they, I think what they were doing was actually assessing risk. I think they were thinking, you know, a lot about um, the riskiness of this procedure. And mm -hmm. because many of their children were dying of other epidemic diseases they were thinking about well do i want to put a disease in my child you know do i want to take the risk of putting this disease into my child um in the face of the fact that they'd seen children die of disease and i think the problem today and i've thought about this a lot this is the thing i keep coming back to is i think we're not very good at risk today we're not very good at oh, right. assessing in what sense? risk well, this is, this is how I've been thinking about it a lot. So um, the number one cause of injuries to children under the age of five today is, has to do with vehicles. So car accidents, being hit by a car, being injured while in a car. And yet, um, at least in North America, this might be a little bit less true in the UK where there's better forms of public transport in major cities, but people put their kids in cars twice a day here. Less so during a mm -hmm. pandemic, but most people during regular ordinary days, put their kid in a car twice a day. They put them in a car seat. That car seat is more often than not, not installed correctly. And they go out into the world and they're like, I'm good, I'm safe, got my kid in the car seat and driving around town. That's incredibly risky behavior. It is much more likely that you are going to have your child injured in that context than by taking them to have a vaccination. The, the you know, there, it is true that some children have um, adverse reactions, but it is a very tiny, statistically tiny number of right. kids. But it is a very high number of kids who get injured in a car. And nobody thinks of that as risky behavior. And I think that's where the disconnect is, is that because vaccinations have been so successful, we have almost eradicated many diseases. Parents today don't don't see the effects of epidemic disease. They're they're just like well measles, whatever, you know. Yeah. And they do these things that actually they don't appreciate are incredibly risky, and refuse to do yeah. the things that actually are statistically really safe. And I think a solution to this it has to do with um, public health communication. I don't think people are communicating with the public extremely well um i don't know if this is true in the uk but when you take your child to be vaccinated or immunized against some disease they present yeah. you with this long piece of 
you know, information and most of it you don't understand, even if you have a PhD and you don't know what <laughs> questions to ask. And it's just kind of scary amount of information. They don't give you anything visual. They don't show you, you know, you know, here is, you know, 1 million little children, icons of little oh. children who after they had vaccination were, you know, unaffected by it. And here's the one yeah. little person over here who had an adverse reaction and is now deaf, right? So for, unless you can really visualize that, statistics don't mean anything to people, right? Sure. And if sure. you could show them, you know, the number of kids out of, you know, a thousand who get injured by vaccination is zero. The number of kids out of a thousand who get injured in a car is 10. That might actually have some kind of, um, it might make sense to people. But I think that we're really bad at risk. We don't get it. We don't know how to calculate it. We don't know what it looks like. And I think 19th century oh, yeah. moms were really good at risk. And they they were like, you know what? I'm not putting deliberately a disease into my kid. I'm just not going to do that. Yeah, because in many ways, risk wasn't something that could cause you or your loved ones harm. And in many ways, the point of economic development, quote unquote, is to remove that from people's everyday lives. And the the way that this percolated into my awareness at the beginning of this pandemic was the way that people speak up or was speaking about and still speak about COVID-19 as a novel problem and as a historian in medicine and healthcare I was going if you, if you subtract the last 40 or 50 years from the last 300 it's the last 40 or 50 years where we haven't had to confront this stuff that's the anomaly. And that to me was really interesting that in the space of like probably my lifetime, sort of 30, 35 years, uh, infectious disease had become this thing that was so foreign to people in developed economies and developed countries that almost the paralysis has come about on an individual level as much from that psychological leap as the policies that have been designed to try and mitigate the pandemic. Yes, I agree, I agree completely. And I think the people who are anti-vaccinationists today, I think yeah. they are not understanding that the reason they are here today is probably because of immunizations, the history of immunizations sure. that have prevented all these um, highly contagious diseases, but they have no worldview in which to understand that because vaccination has been so successful as a medical technology that it's meant that we don't deal with epidemic disease yeah. on a daily basis anymore. And and it's, yeah, since the flu epidemic of 1918 to 20, I think we've had this period of, you know, real luck. Um, yeah. And science has medical science has really um changed the way that we think about epidemic disease because we don't encounter it very often no no we don't I, I mean i guess it depends on where you drop the pin like um i wrote a piece for the the sunday independent one of the national newspapers here um about six or seven months ago and I told the story of how my grandmother had died. She died from tuberculosis in 1962 in a rural village in, in Ireland. And that sounds more like a story from the 1860s rather than the 1960s in most European countries. And it's the fact that Ireland was a bit of an aberration as far as public health infrastructure was concerned. Um, but it, this, what we've just talked about, leads me on to think about the context for historians on this sort of stuff because really what we're talking about is acts of remembering and acts of forgetting on a massive scale and so what do you think the role or roles are uh, for historians in these contemporary debates about vaccination I was really delighted one day to stumble across the fact that the British government in preparing some, this was long ago before this pandemic, this is maybe right. a decade ago, was kind of preparing materials for some kind of vaccination program. And they had cited my work as oh, wow. a, a reason not to make anything compulsory, that, that this was proof that sort of education programs work better. And I thought, oh my God, like, 
the government is actually, you know, paying attention to what's happened in the past and using that as some That's kind of cool. guide. It was really cool. It was a really cool moment because um, <laughs> I often, I often tell like when I work with graduate students, what, po- what we would call postgraduate students, you know, they really worry a lot about, um, well, is my work important? Does it have meaning? You know, and I say, just don't worry about that. Like, do what you believe in and it will or it won't have an afterlife. And it's really interesting that my work on vaccination, which was my dissertation, which I was doing in the late 1990s, which seems so long ago, right? Yeah. Is, oh, is really now like, oh, it's now relevant. Thank goodness. But sure. the point of all this is to say that I think historians are really important to this conversation because we provide um, a kind of um, understanding mm-hmm. of what is and isn't new. And what um, what we should be paying attention to, and what we should not dismiss. So one of the things I've been quite eager to um, think through again is how easy it is to dismiss people who seem to take um, the marginal view, the heterodox view, the fringe view, which is how anti-vaccinationism sure. is usually kind of constructed, and to say, okay, you may not agree with them but let's listen to what they're saying and try and understand what is the context for these concerns and i think historians are really good at taking that long view and being able to step outside um the kind of immediate issue which is i don't want to be vaccinated and see the bigger issue we're good at analysis right and we're good at context so we're good at saying you know okay this isn't just about I do or do not want to be vaccinated. This is about citizenship. This is about a vision of society. It's about a relationship to government. It's about class. It's absolutely in this country about race. And we have to understand that that is what is going on. And I've been really, really heartened that the conversation in the U.S. right now about the vaccine rollout has paid really good attention to the fact that it is going to be much harder to convince African-Americans to be vaccinated for COVID-19. And that is precisely because of the terrible history of experimentation on African-Americans that we've had, you know, for a very long time, but certainly from the era of slavery all the way through um, the 1950s and 60s. Um, And I think people are paying attention to that. And I think they're paying attention to that because the historical work has been done. So Mm -hmm. have people not written about Henrietta Lacks, had they not written about Tuskegee, um, had they not written about the gynecological experiments on slave women, we wouldn't have that really quite full and deep understanding of the long history of um, the the place of African Americans within American medicine. And so I think historians are really, really important here because we can help identify what is going on in the resistance to vaccination that actually isn't about the resistance to this particular vaccine. It's about a much longer history of um, populations within a nation. Absolutely. And and if there are any historians listening, please keep doing what you do. <laughs> it's important. Um, and, and again, you might not under, know that it's, it's not might not seem important now to other people. But as I as my own experience has revealed that sometimes it takes 20 years before people are like, oh, that book you wrote now I get it. <laughs> How easy it is to dismiss people who take the fringe view and to say, Okay, you might not agree with them, but let's listen to them and understand the context. I think that over the scope of a fascinating conversation, one of the last things that Nadia said is perhaps the most pertinent in joining the history of anti-vaccination with its continued contemporary relevance in our own time. I certainly don't agree with Christopher Shaw, whom we heard speaking in 2009 at the beginning of this episode. Nor do I think that anti-vaccine sentiment should be pandered to or appeased. But I do think there's a duty on me to listen to what the men and women who are anti-vaccination or indeed climate change deniers or any other hot-button existential issue that seems to be at play these days have to say and understand the roots of why they hold those opinions. The reason that that duty is contingent upon me is because the truth is at stake. And that truth comes with the cost of other people's well-being, 
quality of life, and perhaps even the difference between life and death. Whether or not I can change the minds of those who maintain these patterns of thought, and what methods I might use to do that, is I think the basis for other future conversations. But if I can proceed from the notion that listening to those who think differently from myself, in the name of trying to establish a consensus around what the truth is, then that is at least a start. I'd like to express my sincere thanks to Nadia Durbach for joining me this week and bringing her expertise to the table in such a calm and relatable manner. Also, thanks to the staff at archive.org for making available the promotional materials of the Canadian anti-vaccine groups used at the start of the episode. As ever, subscribe through the podcast's website, bodypoliticspodcast.com, to stay up to date with our latest episodes and content, or subscribe through Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts to get our latest episodes on your phone or tablet. And if you want to get in touch, send an email to creatorfits at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at bodypolspod. Until next time, stay safe and goodbye. Thank you.